Welcome to the 418th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with writer Alan Stroud, author of the science fiction novel Fearless. Stay tuned for the interview. The Reading and Writing Podcast is brought to you by Libro FM. Libro.fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 185,000 audiobooks, including bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers. You'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there, but you'll be part of a different story one that supports your local community and your local bookstore. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. You can listen during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. Here's your special offer from the Reading and Writing Podcast. Get two audiobooks for the price of one today with your first month of membership with the code RWPODCAST at checkout. This offer is only valid for new members in Canada and the U.S., Check out Libro.fm today. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Alan Stroud, chair of the British Science Fiction Association and author of the latest, his latest novel is Fearless. Alan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Hello, everybody. And yeah, obviously, I'm quite happy to, to sit here, talk about all things related to the British Science Fiction Association and related to to science fiction. So you have me for as long as you want me. Great. If someone hasn't heard about your novel Fearless yet, how would you describe the novel? Oh, I I really struggle. I'll make a confession here. I really struggle to push my own work in terms of defining it, promoting it, and putting it forward. I'm quite good because I, I critique quite a lot of science fiction. I'm quite good at kind of assessing other work and I'm I'm effusive in my praise of some amazing writers who've, who've produced all sorts of stuff. It is though tricky for me to define my own but I have managed to do it with this so I guess the kind of simplest way to think about it in terms of painting an image is it's the expanse meets wrath of Khan in that it's a, a duel between two spaceships in the depths of space within our solar systems with a very kind of strong or at least plausible set of technology although i will confess i'm i don't count myself as being an amateur or or professional scientist but i did try and make the tech fairly consistent do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write fearless i had two really the first was I've always wanted to write something that had a disabled character as the lead and where the disabled character is not attempting to overcome their disability to try and achieve something. I see that as being a a bit of a trope and a bit of a problem in, in the way in which disabled people are, are portrayed in some stories. Disability 
and its its social stigma is something that is is prevalent in my life. There are individuals who are very close to me who I know have struggled to come to terms with how they see themselves and how others see them based on the way in which they, you know, the way in which they are trying to manage. And it it always occurred to me that the situation is that people have things in their lives that they that they have to to deal with they have to to manage and to do and i wanted to write about a character who has found a place in her life where she is absolutely where she wants to be she is everything about where she wants to be and the fact that she has yeah you know, she was born with no legs doesn't really make any difference to the circumstances where she is, the attitude that she has, the competency that that she shows, or anything else. And it, it really shouldn't do. And I wanted that to be a, a character that people could identify with, could admire, could could see and appreciate their story. And so that was the one inspiration. And then the other was really, I have always loved The Wrath of Khan as a film. I've always felt that the kind of slightly contained element of it and the, the sort of naval warfare element of, of what's there. I've always felt it's something that I'd like to explore. I didn't think I had the writing chops, to be honest. And then this, I, I got to a stage in my writing and I thought, actually, I could give this a go. And hopefully we've got what we've got. You know, it, if people like it, then I'm, I'm delighted. Great. So what are your earliest memories of reading science fiction? Uh, so I read every science fiction book that our local library had. Like many, many people my age living in the UK, growing up in the, the south of England, you were at school and you had a little library at school and you'd go across to there and then maybe you'd have your own books. And then eventually your parents give you a town library card and you might get the bus to go into town and you've got this great place up there. And I they had a science fiction and fantasy section and I basically read everything that was there. I had a lot of a lot of fond memories of Asimov. Robots of Dawn was the first thing I read of Asimov. Of course, this is the thing is we didn't get things in sequence. You just read what's there. So you read what, what you can find. So I, I didn't get to read The Caves of Steel or The Naked Sun until much, much later in my life. But The Robots of Dawn I read and I, I loved. I read it at an age where I was probably too young to appreciate some of the nuances some of the the content and that that kind of i guess epitomized the way in which my reading of science fiction went in that i read larry niven i read greg benford i read all sorts lots and lots and many authors who i've never heard of again i had this wonderful short story collection as well that i i recently rebought actually i rebought it about four or five years ago something called exciting stories which was a collection by alan grant who was the the comic book uh, writer and that had a wonderfully pitched selection of stories for for primary school kids of about nine or ten and there was one about an arcade game that comes to life and there was another one about going back in time and there was another one about a robot and all of those different massive ideas clashing and, and crashing down into my head. And I, I loved all of that. And I was always a kid that wanted to to read it. And then I'd go to bed at night and that would be, I'd carry on the story. My imagination would just run until I fell asleep. And that was always an epitome of, of my, my childhood. And it's certainly something that I've tried to reflect back as a writer. I've always thought that if you can inspire people at a young age in a similar way, then, you know, the, that's gold. That's what you should be doing. 
So what has been your own writing journey? When did you take the step from reading these stories and being excited about these stories? And as you just mentioned, continuing the story in your mind to trying to write your own stories? Okay, yeah. So this has been, I have the somewhat strangest, well, I I guess every writer does. Every writer has a a slightly weird journey in in the way in which they go. I'm blessed with a a great long-term memory and a crap short-term memory. I can remember the first story I wrote it was about a pack of pencils. Each of them was a character because they were a different color. And I was six. And that was that was the first thing I wrote. It was 14 pages in my book. And my teacher loved the fact that I was writing a story. So she let me just carry on. And so I did that every break and every time I had any free time. Uh, that moved on in, in junior school as I was 10 or 11. I wrote tried to write detective stories. At senior school, I tried to write fiction in the the English classes. And actually, if you know anything about English teaching in secondary schools in the 1990s, they really weren't cut out for fiction writers. It was, <laughs> it was trying to gently pat you on the back and, and say, actually, could you just do it? do a crit instead of anything original because we don't know how to deal with it and actually that was a little bit of a shame so I I felt a bit stifled it was what it was Uh, I did A-levels and whilst I was doing those I was starting to to write a book and then went to university decided at university I've got three years to work out what I want to do in my life I've got two years I've got six months I'll just get through the exams and then I'll work out what I want to do and I got through graduated in a, a drama and television degree and then turned around and found myself sat in my hometown back you know living with my parents (laughs) thinking what on earth am I going to do and so I then met somebody fell in love moved to to be with her and still didn't have a job didn't have anything but I had this book and this book was the constant of what I did so I I finished it and then managed to, to start working in a school as a technician and then qualified as a teacher and then qualified as a university lecturer but all the while, the writing was there, but it was rubbish. It was absolutely dreadful. I was writing fantasy that I had no clue what I was doing. And I was one of those people in the early 2000s who did what many people do is they buy the writers and artists yearbook, they flick through the pages, and they try and find some agents and publishers that will take a manuscript, and they send some stuff off. And I was sending stuff off and I was doing the silly thing as is, as is now in that I was sending off by post and I was waiting until I got a reply before I sent it to anyone else because you don't want to offend anyone by telling them you've sent it to two people at the same time. So I would wait six or eight weeks and I would get this boilerplate rejection and then I would send to the next person. And that went on for about three or four years in that this stuff was getting slightly refined, but going round and round. And I wasn't getting any better. I wasn't, this stuff was still terrible. So then I managed to, I interviewed for a position at a university, having taught a little bit in schools. And they said to me as part of the position, it was to teach film production and to teach a couple of other bits and pieces. And they said in the interview, they said, it says on your CV, you've written a book. And I said, yeah, I have. At that point, I'd had one publishing offer from a publisher who I was never going to go with. But I said, yeah, I have. And talked a little bit about it, went home. And so they phoned me up a, a couple of weeks later and said, yeah, we'd like to give you the job or we'd like to give you a different job, not the job you applied for. But there's some teaching of writing. It's teaching fantasy and science fiction writing. Is that all right? Yeah. Yeah, that's great. 
<laughs> so I started doing that. And really, I was, I guess, for the first couple of years, I was a bit of a charlatan or a, or a doppelganger dropped into to this classroom because supposedly I was an expert. And I, I was maybe three years older than the kids I was I was there to teach. And I found a way of turning the classroom around so that it became us all learning together in that I was maybe two or three steps ahead of the students because I'd actually written a 100,000-word novel and they hadn't. And I was I was able to offer some insight there. And I was marking their work and gradually learning more and more about what I was doing wrong and everything else. And I, I sort of lost my writing confidence at that point a little bit. Came back to it around 2008, 2009, then got another crit on a novel. I started an urban fantasy, got a crit on that. And that kind of knocked me a little bit as well. I came back to it a little bit later. And then 2012, I I tried to hit the Kindle wave probably about a year or two too late, as in the self-publishing Kindle wave with the whole, oh, let's put a book out for free and then have a whole series behind it. So right. the first one for free, here you go, you're hooked. Now buy all the rest of my titles. And um, you buy your mansion. Yeah, exactly. And I, I, I hit that probably 18 months too late. At 2000, and, I think it was Christmas 2012, I was putting that stuff out and came across a Kickstarter for a computer game called Elite Dangerous. Realized that this was a game that I played in my childhood, was fascinated with. Got in touch with the, the software company and said, I'd really like to help. And they said, yeah, we'd like some help because you'd like to use this for research and you've got a master's degree. At this point, I had a master's degree in in writing. So I'd used some of my rubbish fantasy novel to, to at least to critique, to become a, a sort of, to get my MA. And so they said, yeah, we'd like some help. So I did about three months writing background on this computer game, massive computer game, and then asked them, can I also write a novel? Because there were a lot of other people who were doing novel contracts alongside the release. I was able to do that published Elite Lave Revolution in 2014. That was really my first foray into science fiction. And that, that I, it already had an audience because it had the computer game audience. It already had an audience. So it was certainly a, a step up from where I was. And I'd started to, to properly develop some better writing chops as I'd gone through. I'd got into better techniques. I'd you know stumbled enough. And then it just went on from there. So I did a an urban fantasy, the one that I'd done in 2008, 2009, I managed to re-edit that. That got published in 2017 with Luna Press. I, I did a historical fantasy that got published in 2016, which was a computer game tie-in. I then did another computer game tie-in from late 2016 through to 2019, which was Phoenix Point. And we did all the world development stuff, myself and Jonas Karatsis did all of that and that was released in late 2019 but there's there's a huge amount of background material available on the website we wrote the plot for the game and did did some audio scripts and, and other bits and pieces and then was lucky enough to have a conversation with nick wells from flame tree press at worldcon 2019 and he said we're looking for science fiction authors and i said i've got a i've got a script Are you up for reading it he said yeah i'm going to china for a little bit but i'll come back and uh, yeah, send it over to me. So I sent it over to him. And by, I think it was about October last year, I got an email saying, we love this. We really want it. Are you up for, for signing a contract and becoming part of the Flame Tree team? And yeah, I was delighted. And they've been 
absolutely incredible. They have been absolutely incredible to to me all the way through. I really have loved the experience over the last year. It's been been you know really great, despite obviously the circumstances that we find ourselves in, in terms of the world being beset by a virus, which is slightly ironic because I did spend three years writing a computer game where the world is beset by a virus. So, Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. This, the computer game virus, the virus that we had in the computer game, everyone got turned into crab people. I'm waiting for that to happen at the moment, but yeah. um, you know, I'm sure we'll so, see. So tell, us, so tell us a little bit, you referred several times to this fantasy novel, this 100,000 word fantasy novel that you wrote originally as being terrible and yeah. trying to, and sending it to agents and not getting anywhere. And then you gradually got better. Tell us about that process. What do you feel like you had to improve to get? So to start with, I was, I didn't have any, until I got to, to quite later in my life, I didn't have any proper tuition as a writer. And I, many writers will say this, I'm sure at, at different times in terms of the way in which they, they worked on things. I wrote the, my earliest probably quality piece of work that I did as a writer was I wrote the first stage adaptation of Reaper Man by Terry Pratchett in about 95. And that gave me a bit of confidence. But it was always my own fantasy and it was serious fantasy I wanted to write. And what I found myself doing is trying to write 5,000 words a week. And But what I would do is I'd do that in kind of splurges on days that I had time to do it. And what I would find is that I was writing myself back into the story every time. So my characters were very reactionary as opposed to very proactive. They would Events would happen and my characters would react to them. And then because I'd spend a couple of days not reading or not engaging with the book, I'd then come back to it and my characters would then reflect on all the things that happened to them. Because that was me trying to understand where I'd got to. So uh, my 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 first a little bit like a mess. Yeah, my first draft. And I really didn't understand passive voice. I didn't understand the sort of reported past that I didn't understand all of the, the different things that can draw you out of the text, the things that take you away from it being an immediate thing. I have a few writing rules now that I try and adhere to, which are quite clear and simple rules. And I didn't understand any of those. So of course, everything I'd written was just this turgid sludge through this Tolkien-esque chosen one quest. And it was awful. And I thought it was the best thing since sliced bread. But I didn't have any kind of sounding board. I had one or two friends and and, and my parents, but my parents stopped reading my work in terms <laughs> of crit. They just said, oh, that's great. They stopped giving me any honest criticism after I turned 14 because my dad had some O-levels. My mum had one GCSE. They didn't have any kind of critical faculty to be able to to offer me anything to get further forward they just wanted to encourage and that's fine but I couldn't develop 
And I didn't have any friends who, who were writers, or at least I didn't know anyone who was a writer. I didn't know how to, to move it forward. And so this thing was terrible. And I gradually learned to, to improve. But one of the things I think was a really good thing I did, and, and I've seen other people take the opposite decision, I think it's sometimes I'd counsel against it, is I abandoned it. I abandoned the book. It, it got completely abandoned for the best part of nearly 20 years. And I think that's important. I needed to abandon it. It was beyond saving. And so until I was at a stage where my writing was able to, to do something about unpicking it, it would have taken longer to crit it and make it better than it was to write something fresh. So by abandoning it, I was able to learn. I was able to see that as my, my, my terror, my, my, my sort of worst thing sat in the loft in an attic printed out somewhere and I could learn and I could develop with something fresh and try the ideas on something fresh and just experimented and just gradually through through process after process I got to 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 a better style and to a better understanding of what I'm doing that's interesting so can you tell us about the work that you do with the British Science Fiction Association yeah, of course. We we're we're quite an active organization in 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 the UK in that we are we're essentially we're trying to to promote to promote the arts related to science fiction and related to to genre fiction in general. We run the BSFA awards which are considered to be the the kind of national award for science fiction in in the UK although there are some some excellent other awards we're also involved with the Clark Award. We appoint two of the judges for the Clark Award. We regularly produce periodicals. So we have Vector, which is quite a detailed and and in-depth research publication. And we have Focus, which is our publication for people who want to be writers of science fiction. It offers writing advice and and articles about writing. We run Orbit um, or Orbiter, which is a set of, of writing groups which are groups of aspiring writers who get together and critique each other's work in a round robin, which is a fantastic resource. And I, I dearly wish it was something I had when, when I was this poor, precocious 20-year-old who thought he had an amazing book. And we, we genuinely are trying to, to promote these things all, all the time. We would usually be running events at this, this point in time. We run events in London. We run little socials down there. We we attend Eastercon. We try to attend Worldcon when we can do. So yeah. So essentially, we're we're doing our best to promote science fiction and science fiction writing specifically within the United Kingdom. So what is the state of science fiction and science fiction publishing in Britain today? It's pretty amazing, really. It's when you compare it to other genres. When you look at science fiction, you look at fantasy and you look at horror. They have quite a, a kind of there's quite an engine in the the UK in that we have a, a sort of a set of publishers from the top down. So you've got your major imprints that that your Harper, your Hodder, your Galantz, your Tor. All of those are obviously are at one level, and then just below them you've got some really great international companies like Rebellion, Angry Robot sitting sitting there, and then you have an, a whole thriving set of independent presses which they all revolve around a, a specific kind of industry circuit where we have EasterCon and we have FantasyCon. Now I've been the chair of FantasyCon a couple of times. I was the chair of FantasyCon for 2017 
and 2018, and I'm hopefully the chair for 2021. These essentially, these conventions run as like little industry circuits. So you've got the, the publishers in attendance, you've got the agents in attendance, and you've got the writers in attendance. And you've got these presses that, as I say, run from the top all the way down to the smallest sort of thing. And some of them have, they've started from an individual writer who has decided that they want to publish their own work and then they realize that they're quite good at editing and they want to continue it and they you know they recruit other writers together and so on and so forth so it it's got a, a real sort of vibrant buzz about it and it's lovely it's lovely that, that all of that's there you then have and and this is what makes me smile a little bit sometimes is that there are other kind of self-published presses and self-published authors and and, and people who some operate around this and operate in, in and out of it. So you've got one or two who would who publish something and then they'll be published by an indie and then they'll be published by something else and, they, and then they publish their own. And then you've got these kind of groups that aren't even aware of this thing existing. And it, it's quite quite funny in a way that you occasionally find these science fiction labels that just turn up that are essentially one person deciding they're going into publishing and they don't know that all this exists. And it's it's wonderful when you do discover it. And I, I did. I basically, I think it was about 2013 or so, I discovered all of this being there. And gradually, myself and my partner just immersed ourselves and we ended up running some of the conventions. And yeah, then I ended up running the British Fantasy Society Journal for a while and then moved over to the British Science Fiction Association to, to be the chair. And it's a wonderful situation to be in it's also very humbling i this year because of social distancing the bsfa awards we couldn't do them at EasterCon as we would normally so they were presented in my spare room which you're going through these amazing these amazing works and these amazing writers and it gives you a real opportunity in that i obviously now i'm starting with fearless with my work going forwards i'm starting to perhaps for people to be know my writing a little bit but I'm also known for, for this. And when I get the opportunity, which is lovely, to associate with some of the best writers in science fiction that are, are coming out of the UK for some considerable time. And I mean, there is some really incredible work coming out at the moment. This year's, this year's nomination list was, was incredible. Can you tell us about some of those, some of the British science fiction authors we should be paying attention to? Yeah, yeah. Adrian Tchaikovsky is probably the one that, that people know. Peter Hamilton, obviously, people know. Tade Thompson with the Rosewater Trilogy. Emma Newman, the Planetfall series. There are there are some incredible writers in the UK. Adam Roberts actually was the, he was the examiner for my master's way back at the University of Bedfordshire. And I was scared stupid of him because he was incredibly <laughs> serious. But he's actually not serious at all. Anyone that follows him on Twitter knows that he's very humorous. And I met him years later at a Galantz party. And, and I said, I don't know if you remember me, but blah, blah, blah. And he went, ah, oh, yeah, that was great. What happened? <laughs> I, was, I was, oh, you, you were terrifying. So, yeah, there are some fabulous writers in the UK at the moment and some really great works. And, and it is lovely to see that. It's lovely to see that sort of all of it moving forwards and these people having the opportunity to really get... Because Adrian's been around. I've known Adrian Tchaikovsky for a number of years. He's been around for a number of years. He's, he kind of came out of fantasy, moved into science fiction. He's, you know, his science fiction is amazing. And that's what people are who've not heard of him before. That's what they're discovering at the moment. 
Sure. Given your experience, as we've talked about earlier with this fantasy novel that you worked on for years, and then as you eventually abandoned it, and now you teach creative writing, what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories or novels? Okay, I I could offer probably a few very clear tips, which are are good ones. Firstly, when you're doing an edit, and you're looking through an edit, there is one specific thing I look at is, and I do this as one edit pass in and of itself, is I look for the words had, that, and was. And I look for every sentence where I use the word had, that, or was. And I try to see if those sentences could still could still be in there. Sometimes if you delete those words, the sentences become a bit rough or they, they don't quite make sense. But I try and try and make sure that I have restricted my use of those three words wherever I possibly can. And that that is, I think that is a real helpful thing. It stops you essentially putting a frame in front of your writing. So it means that your reader gets a bit more of a connection with your characters, or at least that's how I think it, it, it seems to work for me. I did a lot of writing in third person up until when I wrote Fearless. Fearless is all in first person present. I never thought I'd write a novel in first person present. Here we are. But all my previous stuff was third person past, apart from a couple of short stories. And it, it yeah, that that change for me was great for my style. But specifically, with all of it, I was always looking at, can I reduce these three words? Can I get rid of these three words? The other thing I'd suggest, there are two other pieces of advice I'd suggest. One is showing emotion. Something that new writers often do is they will tell you how their characters feel. And I have a tendency to advise against that. Much better to describe how someone's hands are shaking or how they they can't stop they can't stop moving or fidgeting or something then tell us that they're frightened because the way in which we experience our own emotions is that stuff happens to us we feel something in our stomach in our heart in our, our legs our arms our face our breathing we feel something and then we define it we give it we give it a name we decide we're frightened we decide that we're nervous we decide we're stressed And actually, if you can emulate that process in your writing, then what that enables the reader to do is make the determination. And hopefully that means the reader feels a bit more connected with your your character. The third piece I'd probably say is I have a phrase called chocolate cake description. And this is where I would get quite a lot of new students come into a writing class and they were always keen to be writers. And so you would then read their work and it would be full of every descriptive word they could find, every adverb, every extra word that they could possibly add, every adjective, anything at all. The description would be really thick. And I'd look at it and I'd kind of then advise them and say, look, the thing is, if you eat too much chocolate cake, you get sick. So why not think about how you're describing things? And decide in your story, what are the most important things that you want people to remember? Now, in those moments, you can use the chocolate. You can put everything onto something that you want people to be really focusing on. They want to to really see it. That's fine. And then in some of the others, maybe dial it back a bit, because what that does is it adds light and shade, adds emphasis. 
in places rather than everything being emphasized, which is the, the thing that happens if, if you put too much into it. That's all good advice. So where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and Fearless and your previous novels? Sure. I'm over at alanstroud.com, although I am I have a weird first name spelling. My first name is A-L-L-E-N. If you go looking for all those strange A-L-A-N Allens, obviously they're the wrong ones. So yeah, so you can find me at alanstroud.com. You can find me on the, the Flame Tree website. I'm obviously, I'm under the authors uh, that are listed there. Fearless is available there. It's also available on Amazon and, and most retailers. And generally, the BSFA website, that gets to me as well. So bsfa.co.uk, chair at bsfa.co.uk always gets to me. I'm pretty easy to find, to be honest. I don't try and hide. Maybe I should. Maybe I should try and try and be more secretive, but yeah, those, those are things that, that that get through to me and and allow people to to come and see what I'm up to. And usually, I'm up to something. I'm one of those people that I don't really stop much. I like to to do all sorts of different things. I compose music. I make sort of short films. I work on bits of audio. I do a bit of digital art. I I'm doing all sorts of different stuff at different times. If anything is interesting, then I'm I'm happy to share it. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Alan Stroud, author of the new science fiction novel, Fearless. The novel is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Alan, thanks for doing this interview. Quite all right. Thanks very much for having me. Take care of yourself, Jeff. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.